Hello, and welcome to the end of sport. My name is Nathan Coleman Lamb. And I'm Derek Silva. What we're going to do today is introduce you to our plans for this podcast, why we're doing it, and before we get to that, who we actually are. Um, so Derek, why don't you tell us about yourself? Um, so my name is Derek Silva. I'm an assistant professor of sociology and criminology uh, at King's University College at Western. Um, my areas of expertise, I kind of have two, two sort of dialectically opposed areas of that I, that I work in. One is terrorism and radicalization studies, and then the other um, is sociology and criminology of sport. Um, which kind of brings me to this podcast with you because um, maybe we'll get to it a little bit later on, but we met through um, uh, through building networks in sociology of sport. Um, I'm particularly interested in questions of of how we or, or what we learn when we engage with sport and how we actually create communities of identity um, and culture around sport. And then what that sort of what sport tells us about society more generally. Um, so I've written pieces on um, sport and national identity and how we respond to um, tragedy in sport um, and what that actually tells us about our imagined communities. I've also written on um, how um, crime and punishment or discourses of crime and punishment, how they operate in sport and how they actually I think, inform the ways in which we as a public understand crime and punishment. Um, so that's kind of a brief introduction to, to what I do. Nathan, how about you introduce us to your work? So my position is uh, a lecturing fellow uh, at the Thompson Writing Program at Duke University, which means that I teach first-year writing seminars um, on sport, uh, on the labor of sport, and on inequality of sport. Um, I'm also uh, a representative in the Duke Faculty Union, uh, and I say that it feels relevant to me in terms of how we're approaching uh, this podcast and this project because we're going to be thinking a lot about labor issues in sport. Um, and I have a feeling that uh, both of us in different ways are going to be experiencing kind of labor issues in higher education in the coming months uh, and years as things escalate, uh, austerity regimes set in, and so forth. Um, I have written a couple books. Uh, the first I co-authored with my mentor, Gamal Abdel-Shahid, uh, and maybe we'll have him on the podcast one of these days. Uh, that might be nice, actually. Um, and that book was called uh, Out of Left Field, Social Inequality in Sports, where we tried to take kind of a broad view of the sort of intersectional approach to um, sport broadly as a form of popular culture understanding how um, capitalism, colonialism, and patriarchy are kind of linked to um, form and constrain athletic cultures. Uh, I more recently wrote a book called uh, Game Misconduct, uh, Injury Fandom and the Business of Sport, which is based Great on... Book. Oh, appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, based on my dissertation. And, and that project really informs my thinking kind of today, uh, and especially in this moment that we're in, and we're going to get into that. Um, but Basically, I looked at, I, I did interviews with um, fans, fans of professional hockey and also professional hockey players at, a very, at various different levels of the sport. Uh, and I did some quite in-depth um, qualitative interviews with those folks to sort of hear about from the fan side why they watch sport, what they get out of the process of watching sport uh, and what their kind of disposition is to the athletes that they're watching. 
and then from the player side, how they understood the experience of um, participating in um, their jobs, jobs that we often don't think of as work, right? Because we kind of fetishize them as this form of popular culture, this child's game that people are privileged to play. Uh, and so it's, we don't really see it as work, but trying to get their insights on how it is a kind of form of work and also critically sort of the sacrifice um, of their bodies and their selves that goes into producing the kind of product of commodity spectacle that is sport as spectators experience it and derive meaning from it, et cetera. Um, so that question of injury as a fundamental feature of high performance sport, spectator sport, is something that I've been really interested in. Um, and I think we'll have lots to talk about there. Um, so those two books are kind of like my, I would say, my more pivotal kind of contributions. But my work sometimes does show up in uh, Jacobin, the Chronicle of Higher Ed, the LA Review of Books and so forth, trying to be kind of participating in um, a more popular conversation about sport. Um, and I think that this podcast is really an attempt to do the same because uh, it's a weird moment for us, right? We're in this kind of paralysis. Our society is in this kind of paralysis to a certain extent. Um, and that is, you know, it's it's not just paralyzing from the standpoint of the economy and kind of like this um, teleological forward motion of neoliberal society, but it's like it's paralyzing on a personal level, right? Because we're kind of trapped in these spaces where it's sometimes it's hard to even go about our day-to-day -day lives because of the stakes of what we're experiencing. Um, it's hard to get work done for various reasons. And yet um, it feels really urgent, right, to, to, to speak back to that moment. And I think that this podcast is hopefully a bit of an opportunity to do that. Um, so I also, it's funny, I, I've actually put on the Twitter account that uh, the locations here are London slash Durham. <laughs> and it kind of sounds like there's a UK podcast because it's sort of, <laughs> our, sort of the other Durham as well in that sense. Um, but anyway, that's where I live these days. But I am from Toronto, I would like to say. So we are actually both, um, we're both Canadians, although we have kind of circuitous roots to finding ourselves in the place we are today. <laughs> so Derek, tell me, I've just given a bit, of, uh, a bit of a sense of why I'm interested in doing a podcast right now. What about you? I love podcasting as a medium in, in terms of trying to get what we do in our classrooms and in our research um, to a much more digestible um, medium or, or a much more digestible form that people can actually like engage with. And I think podcasting does that exceptionally well. Um, when we're talking about sport and we're talking about podcasting about sport, um, it's really interesting you bring up this like state of paralysis that we're in. Um, so like for, for context, um, we're like sitting in quarantine um, and uh, do this, this COVID-19 stuff um, and there is no sport whatsoever. So talking about sport seems almost like um, impossible right now because there's no such like sport doesn't exist. But um, I think in this moment of complete like economic and social paralysis, or at least physical paralysis, like sport is always there, uh, and discourses of sport are are always pervasive. And I think that's what draws me to talk about sport. That no matter what, even when sport is not happening, there's no actual events. Every event is canceled. People can't even get in a room to watch sport. That even in those times, we still talk about sport. We still hear about sport. We still hear news 
every day coming out about sport. And that is something that I hope to engage with um, in this podcast. And one of the questions um, <clears throat> that I kind of have overall is like, why is sport so powerful? Like, what is it about sport that like, even when it's not happening, we still care so much about it? Um, I think we can, we can talk about some of those things um, throughout this podcast and as we, as we uh, move on on a sort of weekly or bi-weekly basis. Absolutely. Um, and just another thing I would add to sort of the question of why doing a podcast. And I think you, you, you have another podcast that you do. Yep. Uh, what's that noise? I've got to give it a shout out. Absolutely. At what's that noise? What's that noise? Um, it's, it's with my uh, close colleague, Tommy Cook. Much more about surveillance and privacy and data, different questions that I have in my work. Exactly. So for you, you know, podcasting is kind of already part of your um, your public scholarship in a certain sense. Um, yeah. For me, you know, it's funny. Years ago, I wanted to do a podcast. It never really happened. I, I would listen to them when I was like going to the gym, this sort of thing. This is before I had a child. Um, <laughs> and I would like, listen to just honestly what is essentially garbage ESPN podcasts, keeping me up to date on like sports news. And we're going to get into kind of our fandom and where that fits in all this. But it was, like, it was basically fueling my fandom in that sense, right? That was the only way I, which I really engage with podcasts. And so it didn't do much. I mean, it was really before that, that I had wanted to do a podcast. And then that was just sort of like, it, it basically, um, that did very little for my own enthusiasm for the genre, right? Because it, mm. it was kind of um, a pretty... Um, banal form of engagement um and then for years after having uh our child um i basically was just cu like cut off from podcasts altogether my life kind of transformed I wasn't going to the gym anymore i'm still not nothing like that um <laughs> you know, just a totally different existence uh, and it's just in the last six months to a year that i've come back to podcasts and mm -hmm. i don't know i've been really um just kind of like I've been excited, I've been stimulated, I've been kind of, I've bought into the podcast thing. My, my friend, uh, yeah. we, we did a guest episode of The East is a Podcast, uh, which is Sina Romani's um, great podcast, mostly on sort Go of... Go check board. that out if Absolutely. you haven't already. Exactly. Um, and like his work, he was, oh, he was encouraging me to start a podcast. Um, and yeah, his work, the work of people like... Um, Maximilian Alvarez on the Working People mm -hmm. podcast, mm -hmm. um, stuff like that. Like people are doing amazing work, basically, and it's kind of struck me at this point. This is a medium I want to participate in. So that's that's all part. I want to give a shout out to those people who are doing great work. Uh, a lot of academics or intellectuals or people who have been shut out of the academy. I think that's really important to say too. Some of the finest work, intellectual work that's being done on all kinds of different subjects. We're talking about podcasts being produced by people who, because of um, the adjunctification of higher education, by the precarious mm -hmm. labor that they're subjected to, by the destruction of the job market, which we're, which we're seeing even further developing these days, um, those folks have not had the opportunities to pursue their intellectual work in the way they may have thought as they were graduate students who were pursuing you know, PhDs in order to become professors, et cetera. But they're brilliant people who have incredible ideas and they're using podcasts as a way of, um, you know, advancing their thinking and sharing it, as you pointed out, right, as disseminating and sharing it with people. And it's incredible work. Um, so, you know, basically, I want to get on that bandwagon because it's exciting stuff. Um, yeah, yeah, we talked about this at, at uh, the North American Society for Sociology of Sport 
um, this past year in Virginia Beach. Like we sat in a hotel room there for hours talking about this exact thing. Like we need this medium. We we need to sort of, or we hope to build this medium where we can have these conversations um, outside of the two or three journals in the field, right? Outside of writing books or or making putting putting things out there behind paywalls or or whatever. And I think that's what drives both of us to this medium. That's it, exactly. And I mean, because it's not just about a conversation among academics either, right? I mean, th this is something we'll get to as well, but I think that like there are, some, there are sports journalists out there, not that many, okay? <laughs> in fact, very few, but some, <laughs> some who are doing incredible work that's very much in the vein of what some um, academics in the realm of sport, right? Involved with the North American Society for the Sociology of Sport, et cetera. Right, there's a real intersection there, um, and there are students who are really enthusiastic about these ideas too. It's amazing. Like, I don't want to dwell on this job market picture, but there are not that many places where students can get um, a really rigorous engagement with the sociology or cultural studies or history of sport in higher education institutions in North America today. Uh, particularly, sorry to interrupt, ahead, but particularly a critical take on sport <laughs> that's that i think is is so lacking in higher education exactly um, looking at syllabi like there are many great courses but there are a lot of courses that are just like oh sport is this pro-social thing that provides socialization and like teaches us how to be great humans but a critical approach to sport that is a is a very difficult thing to find Exactly. And students want it. I know this because I teach at yeah. a university where <laughs> I am one of the only like opportunities these students have to take a course on sport. But guess what? You may have heard of Duke University. It's, it's <laughs> a place that people kind of associate a little bit with sports. I would um, say just a little bit. You might have heard that. Um, and, and so I literally, we have a student population. They've told me, countless students have told me, oh yeah, we see Duke as IV plus sports. That's what Duke yeah. is, IV plus sports. Yeah. I mean, these are exactly the kids that want to take courses on sport that do the kind of thing we're talking about here. And then they don't even have the opportunity to do it, you know? So yeah. for me, like these kind of conversations are conversations the students want to have, the journalists are having. I mean, people want to have them generally. And I actually feel like we're reaching a moment where maybe just a little bit that critical conversation about sport, like the conversation that goes beyond the kind of fanboy disposition of just wanting your team to do well and know the ins and outs of, you know, free agency and the standings, and et cetera. No, like people who want to think about sport as something, um, as something bigger than that, as something more profound than that, as something um, that is interlaced with society in a different way than that, right? That's something that people are paying attention to, uh, to right now. And so I think we want to kind of, we want to further that conversation as much as we can. So with that in mind, why did we call it the end of sport? Uh, I to be completely it was your idea i was <laughs> i was down with it like 100 we, we ran a bunch of ideas off of one another and this was one of the ones that jumped out to me so i'll start with why it jumped out to me i guess okay yes um part of it was that we are currently living in a moment of paralysis that we've mentioned there's this covid 19 pandemic um and quite literally we are living in a time where there is no sport so that, I, that idea of the end of sport really resonated with me. 
um, for that reason, like temporally. The second reason um, that I think is more important is that in the name, the end of sport, it highlights this juxtaposition um, that I personally feel when I approach sport in this juxtaposition of being at once simultaneously a massive sports fan and a critic of sport as it exists in contemporary society. And I think it does a really good job of doing that. There were a couple other ideas like love, hate sport, or like the paradox of sport that were probably a little bit more um, esoteric or a little bit more, um, a little bit less interesting and and useful. Um, But to me, the end of sport really encapsulates that sort of paradoxical relationship that we have, that I have with sport. Yes, absolutely. And I, I completely agree with you on both of those, uh, on both of those fronts. Uh, the first, just to, just to echo what you said, uh, yeah, we're in a moment, we're in a moment that really feels like the end of sport in some sense. Um, it feels like the end of something, at least. Um, mm. In my dreams, that might be neoliberal capital, uh, <laughs> but probably only in my dreams. Uh, but at least temporarily, yeah, it's this vacuum that creates um, creates possibility as well, right? Because it, be, it creates this moment for reflection on what sport actually does for our society, how it fits, what we extract from it, all of that. And I think it's like it really couldn't be a more ideal moment, even though on the one hand it's weird because it's like, what are you going to talk about? There is no sport. So it's a <laughs> terrible time to have a podcast on sport, a time when there's no sport. Um, but precisely because this is a podcast that's not about reporting on what happened in sport last week, right? Like the results, who won the game, all that sort of thing. No, that's not the point here. The point is to think through how sport fits in our world, uh, what we do to people through sport, what people get out of sport. And so it's a perfect moment for us to reflect in that sense and to see even the way in which people are craving for the return of sport, I think tells us a great deal. And of course, those are things we're going to get into. So I totally agree with you on that part. I mean, that's why I think the most literally it is the end of sport in a certain sense. Uh, I won't get too much into the the love-hate sport thing because we'll get into that in a moment just as we sort of mm-hmm. talk about where sport fits in the narrative of our own lives a little bit. And mm-hmm. I, I think that that's going to be a helpful way of kind of grounding who we are. And that's another thing, I'm, by the way, I'm excited to get into with you because as academics who talk about sport, um, you know, we have to embody this kind of you know, pseudo-objectivity, this critical standpoint where, um, God forbid, we ever disclose feeling emotion like desire for this thing that we're talking about um but this is a great opportunity for that i think to to talk about sport like both from that critical intellectual lens but also what we get out of sport right and really put ourselves into it in the way that the subjects we speak about typically are always in it um so yes i think that's a huge part of it and then a couple other things for me that i see in this uh in the name the end of sport first uh it's really an interrogation of the ends of sport, if that makes sense. Mm. And what I mean by that is, what is sport doing, right? What is sport doing in late capitalist North American society, particularly? Because that's the context we're both most familiar with. Yeah. Um, and so in that sense, it's a vehicle for challenging the capitalist, instrumental, hyper-competitive logic that saturates the sporting culture that we are immersed in in this society. Um, The ends of sport are winning, um, 
profit, right? All of these things. These are the ends of sport. They don't have to be, but they are in the world that we're living. And the end of sport is in a certain sense also an opportunity potentially, right? To think through the ends, ends of sport in that sense. Um, and then maybe then, therefore, as a kind of second point, to imagine an end then to this sort of hyper-masculine, dehumanizing, sacrificial sport that has been um, really naturalized for us. I mean, this is the sporting culture. It's not like I <laughs> was born into a different sporting culture that was somehow perverted by the forces of capitalism. The only mm-hmm. sporting culture I know is the sporting culture that we're talking about here. Um, and yet I can hope and dream perhaps for something outside or beyond that. And maybe this is also an opportunity to think about what that might look like a little bit. Um, so for me, those are the, the ways in which this is kind of the end of sport. Um, so with that said, what does sport mean to you? If you had to locate yourself in sport, um, not as an academic, right? And Because we'll get to that. That'll mm-hmm. be the next thing we get to after this. But not as an academic, but as a human being who values sport, who finds meaning in sport, what roles has and does sport play in your life? Yeah, I think this is a great question and a question that every academic um, who is engaged in, in the sort of critical dialogue with sport um, constantly kind of asks themselves. So I can't disconnect the fact that I am a sociologist of sport from my own experience with sport. Um, I will say I'm a massive sport fan. Um, I, I grew up in just outside of Toronto and in Ajax, Ontario. Um, I'm a massive Toronto sports fan. Um, I, for a long time, was, was very much into um, American football, and I was a Denver Broncos fan. And in some ways, I still sort of have lingering feelings that really supports um, uh, the Denver Broncos. Are we talking um, John Elway? But, Is that John Elway? Denver? Yeah, yeah. So okay. I was like, t- I was 10 years old. Um, so that people will know how old I am now. But I was 10 years old, and I was a complete bandwagoner. I was like, whoever wins the Super Bowl, that's my team. <laughs> and it, it was the 1997 Denver Broncos. Um, and I have been a, fa- a, a fan ever since, um, or at least... <clears throat> insofar as I've um, had a relationship with American football that is like deteriorating for a variety of reasons that we'll probably get to um, in this, in this podcast, if not today in the future. Uh, we're going to get to that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think so. So, so I'm a, I, I, I've been a massive fan of like Toronto sports. We're talking like Toronto SC, Toronto Blue Jays, Toronto Raptors. I'm a huge Raptors fan, Toronto Maple Leafs. And then I'm also a, a Liverpool FC fan. Um, a similar sort of um, history with with Liverpool. I just sort of decided one day to to like Liverpool. There's no connection. There's no reason. Um, and so I've been like a, a pretty big professional um, sport fan for as long as I remember. My wife constantly tells me, um, she, she says like, you know everything about sport. You should just like be on on the radio or on TV talking about sport because you say things before these, these like so-called experts say them. Um, and you like have that sort of approach. So I've always had this really, really close relationship with sport. Um, I've um, created friendships based on sport. I've like create bonded with, with my family um, through sport, all of the things that are typically all of the tropes 
that are typically propagated with sport like oh sport teaches you how to like be a uh, be part of a group and, and it's a socialization process and like teaches you leadership and how to like be a team all of those things um got me into sport and then as my career sort of started to develop and i started to like learn more sociological theory and engage in research a little bit more my approach started to like shift a little bit where i wanted to like study why sport was doing this to me like why sport was drawing me in more than anything else like why would i spend three hours watching the toronto raptors and not do my work or not talk to my friends or not like whatever i i could have been doing during that time so this is when my academic interest in sports started to really peak and I was a PhD student at the University of South Carolina, so another big, you know, SEC, big-time college sport um, location. And I'd go to games, and I'd be like, this is just too wild. There's, there's too much people watching that I can do here. There's too much that is so, like, so interesting from my sociological imagination that I can't kind of deny it or I can't disentangle that so i really started to like focus on my own analysis of sport and that's when my relationship deteriorated with american football and that's when i started to like really be kind of alienated um, or at least like be very um, critical of the collegiate model of sport and and football in general and that's even kind of now trickling into hockey and into my uh, my very, for a very long time, been a massive Toronto Maple Leafs fan. Um, but increasingly, I'm just like sick and tired of hockey, hockey culture, and what it means for the athletes and the laborers that are like put at risk, a variety of things. We'll, we'll talk about all that stuff. Um, overall, I'd say I'm a massive sports fan. And in the last podcast we did for the East of the Podcast, I said I'm a massive hypocrite. Like, I'm a huge sports fan, but I'm also the first to critique the system of sport, and, and in particular, the system of professional um, sport. Um, so that's, that's my approach to sport and sport and culture. What about yours? Yeah, well, one thing I'll say is, because I was hearing it in, in your narrative, and I was reflecting on it as part of my own, um, and, and I'm going to go back in time in a second, but when I think about myself as an academic who studies sport, there is a major auto-ethnographical dimension to it, right? Like actually thinking through who we are as people invested in sport is an important part, I think, of like the theoretical appraisal of what sport does and in terms of motivating the kind of research questions you ask and all of that, right? I would agree completely with that. Yeah. So if, I, if I'm thinking about my own kind of my own narrative then in that sense, um, you know, I was totally interpolated into sport by my dad uh, as a very, very young child. Uh, I was taught to be a fan, like a passionate fan. I think he modeled that for me. And so, um, you know, I, I just, I, some of my earliest like profound memories of things like watching the Rose Bowl, um, 
upstairs in my parents' bedroom, like things like that with, with, my, with my father and like just being so deeply immersed in the meaning of that. I wasn't really allowed to watch much TV, but like I could watch sports on TV, right? And it was this thing that my life kind of revolved, came to revolve around to the extent that like I literally remember the imaginative games I would play as a child were like by myself reenacting, like let's say a football <laughs> game, literally by myself in a basement, reenacting a football game. And by the way, recording like the statistics of the play I was imagining yeah. to play. It was like a video game, except I was doing the entire thing myself, including like keeping track of the schedule and the standings and the results and all of that. You know, and that like like for years I would do that sort of thing. Um, and so you know, I, I ended up playing. I played basketball and tennis in high school. That was kind of like the extent of my own athletic prowess. But I certainly took it really seriously. Um, I actually, up until the time I left Toronto, um, which was when I was finishing grad school. So I finished grad school and then I came down to Duke. Um, and up until that point, I was refereeing semi-professionally basketball in Toronto. Um, I hadn't done it for long, but I had just started doing it. I hadn't done it for a couple of years. Um, mm -hmm. So that was sort of my involvement in terms of participation. But the fandom piece is very similar to what you're talking about. Deep Raptors fan, Blue Jays fan, um, not, not a Maple Leafs. This is maybe a touchy point here for you and for others, <laughs> uh, but... I actually became deeply alienated with hockey as a fan growing up in Toronto who didn't like hockey that much because I was yeah. sort of bludgeoned with, with hockey by oh, it's media, my friends. That's right. And all I wanted were the U.S. sports, the U.S. centric yeah. sport. I wanted football. I wanted basketball. I want, you know, I became more of a baseball fan later in life, but football and basketball especially, that's all I wanted. And I got hockey instead. And it pissed mm -hmm. me off and it antagonized mm -hmm. me way more than it would actually for a non-sports fan. Because the non-sports yeah. fan could just tune that stuff out. And then it's like annoying if people are talking about sports, but whatever. But like I wanted to hear about sports, but then I couldn't hear about the sports I wanted to. Um, but then of course I go on to do work with hockey, right? That's a weird thing. It wasn't yeah. my initial intention. If you are living in Canada and you want to do work with professional athletes, let me tell you, it is a lot easier to get access to hockey players because disproportionately there are way more Canadian professional hockey players than any other sport, right? Like yeah. massively disproportionately. So that's sort of what took me towards hockey. But I'm, I mean, I'm really grateful because so many of the questions that I'm really interested in and concerned about and the ones you, we've been gesturing to over and over, um, they're so central to hockey. Right. So hockey really allowed me to think them through in a powerful way. So I'm grateful for my kind of interrogation with hockey, but I still don't like watching hockey that much. I mean, the <laughs> game, I don't enjoy it. And I kind of hate the Toronto Maple Leafs, to be honest. Like I always want the Leafs to lose. Um, <laughs> so you can put that wherever you want. Um, the other thing I, sh I should, I think, mention, because this is the, this is the touchiest spot for my hypocrisy, if you will, is that I grew up as a passionate fan of college sports. Like, so passionate yeah. a fan of college sports. You are 100% a hypocrite. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I acknowledge that. We're going to put that on the table here. Um, yeah. I was so passionate a fan of college sport. I even followed Canadian college football when I was a kid. Okay? That was not wow. a thing that anyone... I would go to the Vanier Cup with my dad every year. Wow. <laughs> and I would watch wow. the games on television in advance. Um, wow. So <laughs> that's, that's part of who I am. Um, yeah. Another part is passionate michigan wolverines fan okay gotta own that uh, my dad went to university in windsor and he yeah so he, that that's how he adopted the team and but i was like again i was raised in it so it was like from birth that was always it might as well have been a toronto team right in that sense yeah. um now my relationship to college sport is not the same as it was much as you <laughs> have articulated um and i don't feel like a hypocrite from the standpoint 
of how I engage with college sport in the world. Because when I am um, when I'm interacting with college athletes, which I do on a daily basis when I am not in quarantine, um, when I'm interacting with the broader sort of world in a more public sense about college sport, there is no ambivalence in how I understand the kind of issues that are at stake. Okay, mm-hmm. so that, that, that's where I want to. I think it's important to say there's a tension, but I wouldn't always call it hypocrisy. Not because I don't yeah. want to attach the word to myself, because no one wants to, but I, I think I'm willing to own a hypocrisy. But I, I do think it's important to point out that there's a difference between the hypocrisy and then the sort of tension, which is like, yes, I love this thing. I was, it's like, there almost feels like this inevitability to me coming to a place like Duke. It couldn't be more perfect for my own life narrative because, you know, I was writing on hockey. I didn't care about hockey. What I really wanted to write about and think about and talk about and everything else about was college sports, right? And now yeah. here I am at a place like Duke where college sport is everywhere. But it's genuine when I say that the thing I see in my day-to-day life is like a regard for these young people who are being viciously exploited by the system. And it's mm-hmm. not difficult to reconcile that with my own fandom because the truth is, in the face of that, the fandom easily falls away, right? Yeah. Um, so there's a, there's a point where I continue to have this sort of abstract Michigan Wolverines fandom. Uh, the fo- I'm grateful to say, and we're going to definitely get into this, I'm grateful to say the football has fallen away thankfully yeah. um it really has i cannot watch in the same way the basketball men's basketball is the thing that persists for me in terms mm-hmm. of fandom. and i think that like i i'm very careful like part of this is like your one's complicity to the system does have to do with the kind of economic investment you make in a system right it has to do yeah. with the way you speak about it the way you reproduce the logic of it in a public sphere Right, that matters. It's not just like you're a hypocrite because your private thoughts are one thing and your public thoughts are another, and that makes you a hypocrite. The public thoughts matter more in the, on these kind of issues because they're doing something, right? They're actually yeah. upholding the system. They're reproducing it. They're telling other people it's acceptable to participate in that system. The private thoughts are something that are much more difficult, right, to reconcile with because. I didn't control the fact that I became, no, no one did. Like, it's not just about me. I mean, no one controls the fact that they're socialized to develop a fandom in something. Yeah. Right? But it does become a part of where you extract meaning, and you can't easily excise that from your identity, from who you are. Um, but I think that what we can do is that we can think through and carefully um, manage the way in which we we reproduce that fandom outside of ourselves, right? And, and most importantly, and this is what we're going to get to over and over again, how we engage with athletic laborers who make that fandom possible. Because yeah. we are fundamentally hypocritical if we make demands of those human beings that we should not be making, right? That, that are dehumanizing to them, that are dehumanizing to any worker, right? Yeah. So perhaps like the, the hope might be to imagine a form of fandom ultimately um, that can step beyond this hypocrisy, right? Like, can I be a fan and a critic of sport at the same time and not be a hypocrite? That's something to contemplate, mm-hmm. actually. Yeah. I think that's like one of the first, maybe like um, ends of sport, if you will, um, to borrow from our name. Like if, if what can come out of this podcast is to reimagine the place of sport within our daily lives and to reimagine our, our own interactions with say laborers but I, I don't think it's just it's just laborers i think it's like with sport as an institution in general if we can like reimagine what that looks like that would be like a massive success in, in terms of 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 this podcast but also just like 
an intellectual journey with with sport. Yes. Yes, exactly. And it's really powerful for me. Like one of the, the thing that has enabled like like you, my academic and critical engagement with sport started me on the journey to distance myself from sport in the way that I had experienced it as that child I was describing earlier. Um, that happens with the, the genuine and honest intellectual engagement, right? With something that you believe in, the ethics that you believe in. It creates that separation naturally. As it, like it's not, it's, not, it's not a separation. Like you become a different person, as you were saying. You can't separate that person into two. Um, but for me, even more profound, I would, I would say, than that intellectual journey is the experience of being with in the classroom athletic laborers day to day in my job and you had that experience and this is where it was interesting because it's like you're in canada right now i'm at at duke right now but like you were in grad school in south carolina i was in grad school in toronto it's kind of like we've been zigzagging (laughs) around right but we yeah real overlap in some of our experiences we've had and probably have been informed in similar ways And i think at south carolina you also had some of those experiences with athletes who were part of your life right day to day and my fandom that emerges out of that is completely different because like now i cheer for the women's volleyball team in a particular way right because there are human beings on that team who i value as human beings who I wish the best for in their lives, who I have seen thinking really seriously about the tensions in their existence. Uh, And so it's like, am I cheering for Duke volleyball? That's a weird question. But am I cheering Mm -hmm. for the people on the Duke volleyball team? Unequivocally, right? And, and, And I think it's most powerful with football. right? Because football is a sport that at the end of the day, like, I'm gonna, I'll say it right now for the first time, I would ultimately choose the abolition of football right now if I was empowered to make that decision. That's where yeah. I stand on it today. And I do not feel conflicted about that at all. So, you know, again, people we- should not be playing that game. That game is not a game that human bodies should be participating in. Period. Exactly. Exactly. End of story. It doesn't matter what level, it doesn't matter what equipment, doesn't matter what rules. That is not a game that people should be playing. Exactly. That's it. That's exactly it. I mean, there's not much, I mean, in some level, not much more needs to be said than that. So therefore, the empathy I feel for the actual football players when I see them in my class, right, is immeasurable because they have to go, they have to live that. They have to live that harm that they're experiencing, the burden of being a student athlete and a student athletic worker. And, uh, and a football player, all of that at the same time as their bodies are being subjected to incredible amounts of pain um, and rigor, et cetera. And so in, a weird, in an incredibly weird way, I now loathe the sport. I have deep problems with any institution that is so invested in the sport. But I'm a passionate fan of Duke football. Because I've had a lot of those players. And I really want the best for those specific young people. Um, so anyway, these are kind of all the tensions we're caught up within, you know, as people who are involved in the world of sport, uh, criticizing the world of sport. But I think it's actually healthy to have those overlaps because the, the day, that day-to-day interaction with the people who are living it is necessary to really uh, to, to have the kind of ethic we need to, to take seriously what their struggles are and to think of them not as an abstraction, but as something that requires abolition. Right? That might have to be the endpoint of our politics, the endpoint of our scholarship. Right? And I'm sorry, I, I'm gesticulating wildly in my own home. No one can see me, but uh, you can just imagine. If you, every time you hear me talking, I'm just wildly gesticulating. Now, can, I think I have a little bit of a story 
that I think articulates what you're saying in a different way. I can I share that? Please, please. Uh, awesome. So I uh, at the University of South Carolina, I was a PhD student, and I my first class that I was able to teach was actually sociology of sport. So I was at the University of South Carolina, PhD student, figuring out my place in, in academia. And the first class I get to teach is the sociology of sport. Of course, all the athletes, all of the, the laborers join that class um, for a variety of reasons. Basically, that class would be half collegiate athletes and half um, non-collegiate athletes, as it, as it were. Can and I, I remember two questions yeah, really quickly. Yeah. I want to interrupt. How big was the class? Uh, the class was 70 to 75 students. Wow. That's enormous. Was there yeah. a rule at South Carolina, about the proportion of athletes to the other, uh, other student population in any class at the university? No. Okay. Duke has one, interestingly. And I think yeah, that is related that is to the UNC, the UNC scandal. UNC, yeah, get into yeah, it. Time. We cannot have 50% plus student athletes in any class at Duke. I would say that's 100% associated with the UNC scandal. Okay. Okay. Please go on. So, so my, my sort of whole approach to sport shifted in one single day in while I was teaching my first seminar or first class on, on sociology of sport. And that's, I was watching, I was up as a PhD student typically is doing like work it was like one in the morning and I turn on the TV and I see the University of South Carolina Gamecocks um, men's basketball team on the television. And I'm like, oh, interesting. Like, oh, it's on, it's on TV. Um, like, is this live? I was like questioning. It was in like overtime. And I'm like, is this live? Like, it's, it's one something in the morning. Um, uh, they were playing away um, from South Carolina. And I'm like, I, I soon realized, yeah, it was live. And then I'm like, wow, half of this team is in my class that begins tomorrow morning, um, bright and early in the morning. Half of these people are away out of Columbia, South Carolina, playing in this game, and they have to show up at my class. Um, and so I'm thinking about, I go to bed, I wake up in the morning, prepare my lecture, and I go to class. They're all there. Everyone's there. And I start talking, and Suddenly, I well, actually, very quickly, I see all these these um, basketball players start kind of falling asleep and dozing off, and I'm just thinking to myself while I'm lecturing, like, no shit, like these people were outside of the state at one o'clock in the morning, still playing. They had to go, they had to shower, they had to get in, in I'd imagine, a bus, maybe a plane, and come back and then get home and then wake up to come to class. And when I realized that this was like a norm for collegiate athletes, this is when my brain kind of really flipped. Before, I was like a naive Canadian that's like, oh, okay, college sport exists. Yeah, there's some exploitation. Yeah, it's shady. But then actually seeing it, actually experiencing it with my own students and in my own class, that is when I was like, this system is messed up. We need to rethink the entire model of collegiate athletics. Yeah, you know what? It's, it's uncanny because I, I had an almost identical experience this past year. Uh, and it had a, uh, like, I mean... I've already been having this, I've been articulating it, this has been like a long-standing process for me. I wouldn't say it was like an overnight shift like you're describing, um, but still incredibly similar. 
I, in this case, I had a, I, um, I had an athlete who, again, I saw on television much in exactly the same way you were describing. I, it was a little bit earlier in the evening because I, with the little one, I go to bed earlier uh, than 1 a.m. But <laughs> nonetheless, I was going to bed and the game was persisting. And I think that's a really powerful effect, right? Because like, I'm going to sleep. Yeah. I need to go to sleep now in order to be functional the next day. And that student had a presentation in my class the next day. Um, and it, it struck me in exactly the same way. How can that person possibly succeed under these circumstances, right? This is one of the questions about, like, we can talk about, um, and we will go on at at various points to talk about college sport and what it means to talk about college sport as exploitation. But, you know, there are often, like, let's say, maybe three ways in which we could predominantly make this sort of larger argument or that's frequently made. The most obvious and frequent is this question of, um, you know, compensation, right? Like, to what extent are they being athletes being compensated for the labor they're providing, given the revenue they're producing to the institution. It's very straightforward and not everyone agrees, um, but it's pretty clear what we're talking about there. Uh, so that's one. Another one is, I would say this question is especially associated with sports like football, this issue of harm and working conditions and occupational health and safety. Uh, and I think that's a really critical one because it's like, to what extent, not only are these folks not compensated, to what extent are their bodies being subjected to harm in order to produce meaning for fans, right? And yet, and yet, they're not even being insured beyond their health insurance in the United States beyond their time in college, right? So that's another mm-hmm. axis of exploitation. I think it's pretty fair to see. But the third here is this question of education, right? Because education is the compensation according to the logic of the system, right? I mean, the NCAA would not deny that. They're literally saying you're being comp, like you get this scholarship, you get the education for quote unquote free. That is an incredible benefit to you, right? So they're saying very explicitly, the education is the compensation in that sense. But, and this is the key, you know, a lot of people want to then kind of push back on that logic by saying, look at the UNC um, cheating scandal, right? This idea that we're taking paper classes and what they mean by paper classes is like a so-called, like let's say the equivalent of a directed reading course, except that you don't actually have to do any work. You have to write like a two-page paper, no one's really grading it. It's essentially not a class that you get credit for. And therefore, obviously that there's, that's academic impropriety. Uh, it's certainly undermining the credibility of the institution as a site of pedagogy. Fine. I mean, we all get that. And they're also, those students are literally being cheated of the thing that they were supposedly being compensated with. We can all yeah. see that wherever there is cheating happening in the NBA, in, in the NCAA, excuse me, yeah, that's clearly a form of exploitation in terms of the fact that people are not getting what they're being compensated, they're supposedly being compensated with. But I do not see that as a fundamental structural issue with the NCAA system. I think it happens in some places, but that's not the real reason why education is a form of exploitation for NCAA athletes. The real reason is because structurally speaking, it is actually not possible for athletes to get the educational experience that their peers who do not have athletic labor obligations, it is not possible for for them to get the same experiences as those peers because of the demands of their athletic labor. And that is what you are getting at specifically. They literally cannot stay awake in class at times. And then add insult to injury, faculty are treating them like they are the problem. I mean, literally, I have heard this from administration talking as a faculty member at such an institution. I have heard the point being made, like, the issue here is is engagement. That's the problem. Student-athlete engagement. They're not engaged enough. They're not taking ownership over their education. And that is such a lie because we're talking about young people whose bodies are working 40-plus hours on a field, if we're talking about football, sacrificing their bodies on that field. 
how can they possibly have resources left at the end of the day to be alert in the classroom? And that's what you're describing. They weren't. They were asleep in the classroom because they had to, as human beings, fall asleep in that classroom. How can they take advantage of the incredible summer internship opportunities that students have at these institutions that they're paying for at these institutions that tuition is buying them? Because they have to be training during the summer, right? They can't even take the classes that they want to take because guess what? They have practice at certain times. So they can only take uh, classes that align with the practice schedule. And then in addition to that, guess what? The coaches have bonuses built into their contracts that reward them for the academic success of their students. So they are literally steering students into so-called easier classes because it will benefit their pay even as the student athletes are not being paid. So, I mean, it's not a great system. No, it's a, I, and I think you articulate exceptionally well when, when, you, when you said that you've heard so many people um, contribute to this rhetoric that like the, the collegiate athlete is like the problem, that they're not engaged, they don't care, they, they're not like studying, they're not doing the work. And what is completely lost from that is the fact that like it's an impossibility. That's a paradox. Like to expect that collegiate athletes in any sport, not just revenue generating sport, but any sport can experience the college life and the educational um, benefits of these institutions is, is completely, it's an impossibility. It just doesn't exist. And you've, you've articulated that exceptionally well. I appreciate that. And I mean, we, we, I want to come back to that because that for me is the intellectually, the thing I really want to grapple with is what to do with the so-called non or low revenue sports in the system. I think that's yeah. the way harder thing to conceptualize. It's not hard yeah. to see what those kids are going through, the challenges that they face. I'm not trying to say any of that. Um, the fact that there's often not enough um, representation of those individuals, especially women's sports in terms of like mm-hmm. promotion, all that's all real. Um, but like someone like Victoria Jackson, the historian at Arizona State University, has made the incredibly compelling case that there is a way in which, and she is someone who's a, 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 a track champion, a national champion mm-hmm. herself. So she had gone through this experience and she was articulating it as like a new Jim Crow in the sense that she was arguing that the revenue generated by the football, men's football and basketball, the so-called revenue sport athletes, actually subsidizes the system for the non-revenue or low-revenue athletes, which allows them to have a more real college experience than the revenue sport athletes do um and that it's deeply a racialized phenomenon right and that's why that's why that language of new jim crow is that we're talking about a heavily racialized revenue men's sport subsidizing what in many cases is in the so-called non or low revenue sports largely white sports right and so those folks are getting some of the benefits um it's a really i think that's a it's a definitely a compelling argument so i'm I'm, that when i say that it's like a challenge I, i i accept that logic on face value on one hand. And yet, honestly, I watch the non-revenue sport athletes. I look at their experiences. I see these people. It doesn't look like that much of a benefit to me when I see it on a face. I I see what looks to me qualitatively like exploitation when I look at the experiences of those individuals. So I feel a tension there. And that's something um, it would be wonderful to kind of come back to. And maybe we'll be able to have someone on the show who can kind of talk us through that in the future. Um, Absolutely. But listen, so we've been talking a lot about, we just got, we just went this deep dive on college sport. We're probably going to, probably going to keep happening. <laughs> I imagine, I imagine almost every episode we might just go into a hate on for the NCAA. <laughs> That's a distinct possibility. Um, but, you know, okay, let's, let's step back from that for a second. Yeah. Let's kind of abstract because I actually want to talk a little bit about 
our sort of theoretical orientation, if you will, or, or like what kinds of motivating um, uh, ideas frame the way we see sport and like make it this, this, for instance, I'm making an argument about exploitation. That argument comes from somewhere in terms of um, a theoretical orientation. And there's a question I want to ask you, Derek. Okay, I hope yeah. you're ready for it. Yeah. Are you a Marxist? <laughs> because I am. I'm, I'm going to own that right I, here. Yeah, I know you are. Yeah. <laughs> um, I would say no, I am okay. not. All right, I want to hear you justify um, that position. Um, so I, I, I would say that um, Marxism has a place in my theoretical orientation. Um, I would say that it isn't the foundation of my theoretical um, orientation. So if like, um, I'll, I'll put it very briefly, I'm kind of like a methodological and, and theoretical uh, toolkitter or like I try to engage with a, a bunch of different theories and methods insofar as they help me understand and look at questions in interesting ways. I would say I am um, much more in the school of a kind of neo-Marxist governmentality like michel foucault style of um of thinking where i i'm interested in the ways in which we are governed to do certain things for certain ends and i say like neo-marxist and foucault for a very specific reason because foucault was heavily indebted to the work of Karl marx and and many others um so i i i don't think i am a staunch kind of orthodox Marxist, but it lingers throughout all of my work. And, and my main questions always come back to how we are governed to suit particular needs in particular contexts and by particular authorities. Is okay. that clear? Yeah, it's clear. And I appreciate that. And we may come back to this because for me, um, look, I, I mean, obviously, I'm sympathetic to Foucault in a, a lot of ways, and obviously, the, the impact of Foucaultian thought is, you know, profound in the academy, uh, um, and saturates the way we use language fundamentally, like just the, the question of discourse or whatever else, right? And that's part that's part of how I talk as an academic. Um, but and I would just say briefly on that, but I, again, maybe we want to come back to this at another point. My problem with sort of um, locating my if i was trying to locate myself as like a foucauldian as opposed to um someone within a broader kind of marxian framework marxist framework is that i ultimately think i, I want to know where power is really coming from and I, I feel like you know foucault was all about power and it's really useful to think about all the ways in which power flows um and governmentality and whatnot but for me um that analysis is much more con compelling if we really understand how it is situated in capitalism right, in the mm -hmm. way, the advance of capitalism. And Foucault makes a lot more sense to me in the way that Foucault's talking, if you situate it within a more Marxist framework. Um, but I feel like he's abstracting from capitalism too much for my liking, to a certain extent. And I think that we mm -hmm. lose some kind of analytical rigor and also the politics. I mean, like, Foucault is political on a certain level, but I also think, like, we are literally living in a moment um, that is making it profoundly clear, right, the extent to which like capitalism is informing the ability of the societies we're living in to respond to a crisis, a health yeah. crisis, an yeah. economic crisis. It's not just because of how the state is organized. The state is organized the way it is because of capital. It is serving yeah. the interests of capital and crushing labor very consciously. And that's not just about power 
flowing in various ways, right? Or about the state having sort of like power on it of its own that goes sort of beyond. No, it's about capitalism. And I think we have to see it within that framework for it to make more sense. But that's, I mean, I don't, I'm not trying to push you on a debate there right now. Mm-hmm. Well, I am and I am not. But I, I want to at least maybe gesture to the fact that that might be a debate that's underlying some of our um, conversations as we move forward. And I welcome that. Now, uh, listen, Nathan. Yeah. Yes. We, if we were to agree on everything, yes. this would be a very boring ass podcast. <laughs> Good so, <point>. like, <laughs> I'm glad that we don't approach things in the same way. I think, like, overall, like, our we we share a mutual um, dislike or maybe disenfranchisement with the NCAA structure and, mm-hmm. and the collegiate sport model. That will probably be something we we definitely agree on. But hopefully, we don't agree on every single thing. Yeah. Or else, I think people listening to this would be like, "What? Why am I? Li- I know what the end of this podcast is going to say." That's true. Well, at least we don't agree on the Toronto Maple Leafs, so that's a good. That's a good <laughs> point. Um, by the way, I have to admit that I was actually raised as a Habs fan as well. So that may also yeah. be part of my, my uh, antipathy towards the Leafs. Um, but here's the other thing I want to say theoretically. Yeah. I think this is relevant to us uh, in terms of how we want to move forward with the pod, and that is that. I'm also strongly influenced by cultural studies, Stuart Hall, yeah. and and I think it's really important. Like, I'm calling myself a Marxist, but uh, I take very seriously the place of representation, right, in our society, and the power of representation to reproduce the kind of logic of capital. Um, and so, I think when we're thinking about sport, like if I'm, if I'm going to call myself like a Marxist critic of sport. Yeah, obviously, a huge part of what I'm worried about are the labor relations in sport, right? Yeah. The way in which capital organizes how sport operates. Um, and by the way, I would call it in in capitalist sport, right? Because mm-hmm. not all sport is capitalist sport. And so, like, we, we might use a shorthand as sport or the end of sport, but we're really talking about a very particular, historically yeah. specific type of sport. And that is Absolutely. the slate capitalist sport that we're all familiar with, obviously. Yeah. Um, so, so, obviously, the Marxist approach is looking at the way in which bodies are being sacrificed for um, the ultimate profit motive, right? To produce a commodity spectacle that satisfies a market of fans, et cetera, right? Um, yeah. But then there's also this aspect that is, what are fans learning by watching sport, right? That's like looking at it from a completely the other side, dialectically. We're looking at it completely from the other side. And if we look at it from the fan side, um, then there's a lot that's happening in the context of sport because sport reproduces ideas about not just like capitalism, but really ideas about patriarchy, ideas about race relations, ideas about sexuality, all sorts of ideas that we have about how the world is organized. Um, and those things filter through the ways in which sport is represented, not just like the games themselves, but the fact that sport is a culture industry, right? And we learn from that uh, a great deal. And I think that one thing I, I'm hoping that we're going to accomplish here is to think about some specific examples of cultural representation in the context of sport that allow us to tease out the kinds of ideas that sporting culture persistently reproduces and rehearses in our society that have a really profound impact on the society as a whole, even beyond sport. Yeah. I, I think I, I, I want to do a, a very quick shout out to my colleague, Liam Kennedy, um, because him and I are working, this is exactly the, or these are the types of questions we are working on and trying to actively like answer is what do fans and onlookers actually get out of sport in terms of cultural representations? We've traced this, like I said earlier, um, in our response to the Humboldt Broncos uh, bus uh, uh, bus crash. Um, we're currently engaged with like how we understand discourses of crime and punishment um, through sport. 
which like really is overlooked. But like many people, I I think, and we we try to make this argument, many people get their approach to or or influenced by sport in how they understand like appropriate punishment. And when we're talking about like fines and suspensions and all of these things in sport, that actually reinforces how we think about crime, deviance, and punishment outside of sport. So I wanted to I want to give a shout out. We're gonna get Liam on this pod for sure um, because I think he'd be a great um, person to chat about. Yeah, he, chat, also, um, he also has to tell me about what it's like to be in a fight with the leader of the Canadian Conservative Party. Um, absolutely. He also, yeah, yeah. Andrew Shear gave him a nice little shout out over a, a glass of scotch. Um, <laughs> so maybe we'll, we'll ask him about that if we can get him on. Yeah, no, by the way, I'm joking, but I'm also not because that's a paper about yeah. Paw Patrol. Um, oh, and incredible of paper. course, the Canadian Conservative Party is like making light of the fact that you'd be making arguments about Paw Patrol. But actually, I mean, I may be making fun of the kind of controversy, but I'm actually, I'm directly with Liam on this. If, if I'm taking sports seriously, as a site of popular culture, I might take children's television programming even more seriously, especially someone with a child, like the profound impact, the lessons that are learned through these programs. Uh, we, we can't possibly understate their significance. So I love the argument that he's making there about the sort of neoliberal logic of shows like Paw Patrol, and we should absolutely have him on the podcast. Um, so if you're out there, Liam, get ready for uh, <laughs> your time on the hot seat here. Um, so, okay, great. So this is actually, I think, a good segue, really, Derek, for talking a little yeah. more about um well some of the let's say some of the topics we want to pursue on this show and, and then like what what the hell is the point of this yes. podcast okay like that really that's the question right okay. like yes. what are we trying to do here what can like maybe this is our pitch to our potential audience that hopefully people will listen um like why they should come and listen I think that's a, a good way to kind of frame it okay yes yeah. so you start what's your pitch there um my pitch is something that I, I listen to a lot of sports podcasts um, and there's a, a lot of really, really great ones, but they tend to be very much like about sport in like an acritical way in a descriptive way, talking about current events in sport. And what I'm, what I'm seeing that's kind of lacking is this distinctly critical um, intellectual discussion of the role of sport in society. And I think that's what this podcast, that's the MO of this podcast, is to try to have discussions about sport that are distinctly critical and hopefully have several conversations with people inside of sport, athletes, um, uh, if we can get like administrators and management, um, but also scholars and people working in this field, having people come on this podcast and, and talk about how they um, approach sport and and the questions that they're grappling with um, would be incredible. So hopefully we have interviews, we have just commentaries of you um, and and myself going through what's happening in sport and how we read those um, those things. I think that's really what I want to use this podcast for. Yeah, I, I, I think that's exactly right. Uh, and. and- so as you say, I think it's going to be a mix between kind of com- our own commentary on the sort of uh, the topical happenings in the world of of and beyond sport, as it were, in this moment. Uh, and then in addition to that, when we're talking about interviews, I think for us, the key is we want to talk to people and ask them the kind of questions that they don't necessarily always get asked. 
the sort of people yeah. that might, people might want to interview on any kind of podcast, radio show, et cetera, right? But they're, they're going to give their pat, media-trained answers to those questions about like how they're working oh, hard and giving their best. Give it 110%. Exactly. We want to ask the questions about what it means, for instance, if we're talking to an athlete, what it means to be a worker in the context of sport. What is your relationship with fans, right? How do you understand the demands that are being placed on you in this pandemic moment when like Major League Baseball is trying to rush everyone and sequester them in Arizona and we don't care if they get sick because we got more minor leaguers in reserve who are also sequestered in Arizona, right? What does it feel like to be a worker in that context, right? To be a person who has a family at home and who doesn't feel good on a certain day. And so, you know what? You don't give 110 percent on the field not because you're not trying or whatever else but because it's not possible for human beings under those kinds of under certain kinds of conditions to be their best no worker can under those conditions what does it feel like though when let's say you're, you're playing in front of twenty thousand people and they don't recognize that you're a human being they think of you as something else right so yeah. we want to be asking those kind of questions and, and because i think there's nothing more well i can we, i can theorize all i want about a sort of marxist approach to sport and sport of social reproduction but there is nothing more powerful than narrative hearing people's actual experiences and what it actually means to live these types um of of challenges and contradictions and what what have you. So um, that's what I'd love to hear from uh, from athletes. And I'd love to hear from academics of sport, how they're understanding these kind of moments that are unfolding, right? Moments that none of us have ever lived before. How do they see sport unfolding? Because you and I, we're spitballing here, right? We're trying to make sense of it, but we're doing it in real time. And that's not actually what academics typically do, right? We're not (laughs) really pundits in that sense. If we're doing our job seriously we're people who take time for reflection right and distance is helpful for that reflection yeah. but we don't have that time right now um so i'm, I'm really curious to see I, I imagine there's going to be a lot of sort of um, divergent takes really on how to understand yeah. this moment i'm excited to see that and the last category is i'd love to have um a couple journalists on the show too right because these are yeah. people who make meaning in the context of sport who produce representation and i'd love to talk through with them kind of how they see themselves in this larger sort of political economy of sport that we've been sketching out here yeah and then so and you so you mentioned that i think or maybe you didn't but what i want what we both wanted to get to is this one additional piece which is that We'd love to do some pop culture readings as well on the show, right? Have certain um, themed episodes that we might tell folks about in advance. So if you were interested in kind of following along, you might be able to kind of prep alongside us and say, like, you know, in two weeks, we're going to be doing a show on um, Sunderland Till I Die, for instance. Yeah. Or Cheer. Oh, by the way, I started watching that. Oh, awesome. Okay. Well, so, so stay tuned because we're definitely going to talk about Sunderland Until I Die and also Cheer, which I started watching. Um, so yeah. some of these, I think, really critical shows in this moment because they are, these are, this is exactly what we're talking about. They're on Netflix. They're readily available. People have time for watching and binging right now, right? But these yeah. are teaching us things about how you should play sport, what the role of sport should be. And they're compelling to watch. They're desirable to watch. I enjoy watching them, but we also want to deconstruct what they're saying about sport. So I, I'd be really yeah. excited to do that kind of collectively with you and with um, those who want to kind of come along with us with that ride. Right.